This is Lex Kibernetica, the cyber law podcast by the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Lex Kibernetica. Human enhancement technologies are being rapidly developed and deployed in armies. How does that affect war ethics? Are enhanced soldiers humans or weapons? And what becomes of them when they leave the army and rejoin the civil society? All that and more with our esteemed guests. Hello, my name is Professor Noam Lubel. Uh, I'm a professor of international law at the University of Essex, a research associate at the Hebrew University's cybersecurity program, and the Swiss chair of humanitarian law at the Geneva Academy. And one of your uh, research uh, subjects is uh, regulation of um, cybersecurity. Yes, so... Uh, I've in recent years been working quite a lot on a range of different new technologies and in particular their military applications and, and the legal concerns that uh, that arise uh, and of course uh, hold your guns we'll get to the military later <laughs> <laughs> well uh, I suppose when you say cyber security that already raises military questions but actually that comment is a very interesting one because I What I found very, very interesting about the whole debates on uh, cybersecurity is the way in which the discussion has been militarized uh, very, very early on. So what happened was, I think militaries were amongst the first to talk publicly about the importance of dealing with cyber threats and that cyber threats can become even to some degree existential. in some circumstances. And the people that picked up on this academically as well often were those that were working in the areas of uh, the laws of war, laws yeah. of armed conflict. It would make sense because if you're trying to deal with security in the physical world, you usually have people from within the country that you have to deal with, uh, breaking into your house, uh, murdering you, etc. But in cyber, The attacks can come from outside and they can come from state actors that use groups that hide their affiliations. It's easy to see why a lot of the discussion occurred within the military domain, both from militaries and from sort of the experts that deal with with militaries and, and the law surrounding that. But the downside to that was that it meant that most of the discussion of how we regulate, deal with and, and so on in the area of cybersecurity, at least at the state level, ended up very much focusing on the branch of law that deals with military operations. And the reality is that most cyber threats occur not in the context of armed conflict, and from a legal perspective, don't necessarily arise to the threshold of what we would consider to be a military attack. And therefore, the legal framework to deal with them in many cases should not be the one that deals with military operations, but we were for many, many years stuck in that mindset of always searching for it under that particular spotlight rather than looking wider. So where does uh, most of the hacking come from? Uh, is it criminal? Is it um, people want to show their expertise? So it's a combination. I mean, most of the threats, even if they do come from states, I think the point I was making, it's not that threats don't come from states. It's just that uh, for something to, to be regulated uh, through the laws that apply to armed conflict, it needs to, to be part of an armed conflict, reach certain thresholds. And most of the cyber operations uh, tend to be more along the lines of trying to steal information. That's one of the most obvious ones. And again, that usually is not what we consider to be sort of an attack in a military sense. And so there's a lot of that going on. And there are other tools to try and deal with this rather than sort of jumping straight into military speak. So if a country or a hacker group hacks Lockheed Martin mm-hmm. and takes 
security information from there, maybe steal blueprints of a plane. Is it a military attack or a commercial attack or is it something in between? So these things can be a combination and this isn't new. You know, they've been going back at least sort of 20 years. You can find uh, there was a Titan, there were all sorts of others over the years where, where indeed Lockheed Martin, other, other companies have been hacked and terabytes, which, which say a decade ago, terabyte was a lot of information. <laughs> the terabytes of information were stolen. It absolutely is a security concern. The point I'm making is simply that the legal framework of the laws of armed conflict only contains a limited set of definitions and tools and responses. What is it missing as compared to the uh, civil um, so, frame, uh, framework? Yeah. So, for example, there are frameworks and legal frameworks that deal with uh, telecommunications, that deal with trade, that uh, deal with violations of international law that are not armed conflict and various invasions of sovereignty that are not armed conflict. And within those, there, there are sets of rules and responses, appropriate responses or inappropriate responses. And I think what's been seen in recent years, and if you look at the evolution of the Tallinn Manual, for example, which itself is a subject to all sorts of uh, analysis and critiques, but the, the first Tallinn Manual was very much focused on the laws of armed conflict. And then I think correctly, the, the, the people behind it were very much aware that actually, hold on, there's many other laws that we need to be looking at. And they very quickly moved on to produce the second edition, which is a much wider in scope project and, and tries to point out a lot of these other legal frameworks. So you're talking about civil versus uh, a military, uh, cyber warfare, cyber uh, attacks. And the technology is uh, sipping from civil uses to military uses. One of those examples is the usage of AI in Ius ad bellum, which is... The resort to war. The resort, the resort to, to war. force. Can you tell us about that? That's one of your uh, subjects of research. Yeah, so this is a, an article I've just recently completed together with Professor Ashley Deeks and Dr. Darren Murray. And here we were looking at the way AI and machine learning might be used in the context of state decisions to resort to force, or essentially to go to war. There's been a lot of focus in recent years on the use of AI on the battlefield, but less discussion of the initial decisions to go to war. Part of the things that we were looking at is the ways in which we're quite used now to having algorithms assist us in decisions, for example, in the healthcare field when insurance companies want to assess uh, which individuals pose a higher risk and so on. Uh, so algorithms are everywhere in terms of the decisions that we make. And what we wanted to look at is how might they already be, or in the future, be more prevalent in state decisions on resort to force. And we're not, I'd like to think that we're not at least, and, and won't be uh, yet anywhere near a situation where a state goes to war, and when asked why, you say, the computer told us to. Uh, so, so. <laughs> Currently, we're just letting them choose the names and, and not even that. Yeah. So, so, you know, we're not there, and hopefully we're a long way from that. However, I don't think it's a stretch to imagine that the use of AI in generally in intelligence gathering and intelligence analysis is growing And that same intelligence analysis is what essentially politicians and military commanders use to make their decisions to go yeah, to war. Yeah, but who do you trust more, the computer or the politicians? 
So, so this, so this is the question generally with algorithms, right? So there are big questions around the, uh, but specifically about politicians. Well, <laughs> yeah. uh, but the quality and reliability in this context is an interesting one. So, for decisions, for example, on resort to force, other than having Security Council authorization, the only other uh, widely recognized legal justification for going to war is self-defense, uh, and that means if you've come under an armed attack, or Arguably, and this you know there are different views on this. Uh, if there is an imminent armed attack about to be launched against you, this is probably the place where the use of AI is most likely to develop. Right, so the AI helps you to figure out: Are you about to come under armed attack? Analyzing all sorts of things from uh, troop movements of the other states through to analyzing things that their politicians said uh, and so on. And with all of that, uh, it gets presented to the decision makers when you decide: Oh, they're about to attack us. We need to attack first. In this area, I think we are likely to see more use of machine learning. And there are real questions because machine learning, generally speaking, and AI in this context, relies heavily on large data sets, right? That's why we talk about big data. So you need huge amounts of data, and this is the whole advantage of it. It can take huge amounts of data and find correlation, which isn't always causation, but correlations in places that as humans, we weren't able to identify and to see. For going to war, for resort to force decisions, self-defense, armed attack, I think it's questionable as to whether there is enough data out there to build a reliable uh, algorithms to, to inform our decisions. So that's one of the challenges, just as an example. It's interesting. Did you try to take current algorithms and run them on data of conflicts in the past? No, that's, that's not the side we're coming from. But just knowing in other areas, the amount of data that goes into algorithms that are used, say, in the healthcare field is tremendous. If you just think in terms of the number of times in the last few decades that a state has resorted to force and claimed self-defense, you know, in 10 minutes, you can list all of them. So is that enough data to build a reliable uh, algorithm, I think, is a very big question. And what has uh, your uh, research concluded? We looked, first of all, at the, these questions that I just mentioned in terms of the quality and reliability of, the, of machine learning in this context. Uh, we, we also just wanted at this stage to raise some of the questions and alerts, uh, I suppose, the decision makers that, hold on, please be aware that you are more and more likely to be relying on machine learning and you need to know what the problems are with that, including automation bias and assuming that, uh, you know, that the AI is correct and we know that that can be Really the problem. automation bias is the bias that the programmers uh, insert into. So, so in, in our context, we talk about the, the assumption that the program is correct. Uh -huh, that the okay. that whatever the computer told you, you're, you're less likely to challenge it. You see that in all sorts of fields, and this is a like people driving to a dead end because the exactly navigation the just yeah yeah you know told you to drive off a cliff. It can't be wrong, and you drive off a cliff. But in this case, if it leads you to go to war, the consequences are more serious, at least for more people. We, we were also looking at the question of whether we might end up with a, some form of uh, automaticity in self-defense, uh, particularly in the context of cyber We cyber have attacks. that in Israel. We have uh, like a machine gun on the border. The Iron Dome. Uh, no, no, no. I'm talking about a battery of machine guns that shoot anybody who gets into a certain area. So those types of things have existed for a while also in Korea, for example, Samsung makes, uh, makes them there. But most of the systems right now are defensive systems. So it can just be in a particular area, shooting down something incoming. Enforcing uh, borders. Yeah. And uh, the question that we raise is, 
are we going to see a move, and this is particularly in the context of uh, cyber operations, into sort of automatic counter-offenses. So usually the automatic defense in a cyber operation will be that the system will recognize that it's under attack, set up certain firewalls, close itself off so that it can't spread further into the system, and so on. But there's nothing to stop, technologically, nothing to stop us from having it also launch a counter-offensive, a cyber counter-offensive. Like in war games. Exactly, exactly. So so that was something else that we looked at in this research. And, and right now it's more about just trying to, to figure out what the problems are, what are the risks, what are the dangers, and work through them as the technology develops. And do you fear that in the coming years, in the foreseeable future, we might see something like that? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'd, be surprised. I'd be surprised if we didn't. Okay. and uh, speaking- I, I'm, not, I'm not saying it pleases me, but I'm just, <laughs> you know, let's be real. And speaking of, of scary um, predictions, robots in the battlefield. So this is something that's been debated now for many years, but the debate really picked up probably around 2012 about the use of robots on the battlefield. Those that are more likely to be opposed have, have termed them killer robots. And the term that's often used nowadays and including in UN forums is of autonomous weapon systems. And so here, unlike the previous research where I was talking about the decision to resort to force, here we're talking about once you're in an armed conflict already, what place might autonomous weapon systems play on the battlefield? And there are a host of legal and ethical questions. Uh, The challenge here is differentiating between the technical problems and the legal problems and the ethical problems. So when people say, oh, uh, you know, a system like this uh, would never be able to properly distinguish between, say, a short soldier with a real machine gun and a child with a toy gun, right? Or a wounded soldier lying on the ground with a gun next to them versus a sniper lying on the ground about to shoot. That's, that is really a problem, but that's a technical problem. It's a technical problem, and it sounds like the same problem people have with autonomous cars. Autonomous cars sometimes uh, hurt or kill people but way less than human drivers. Yeah, so that moves us already into legal and ethical questions. But before we get there, we need to first identify what is our concern. Is it a technical concern? Can the technology do this or can't it? Or is it a legal problem or is it an ethical problem? So can, say, a a autonomous weapon system distinguish between the civilian and the soldier? That is a question of the technology. Can it or can't it? If it can't, then we shouldn't be using something that can't do that. But where it gets interesting is if you say, okay, let's assume one day it would be able to. You know, what then? And then you get into the question of, is there a a legal reason not to be using these systems? And even if there is no legal reason not to, is there an ethical concern? Some would say the two are connected that there are notions of humanity built into the law and that it is inhumane to allow a, a machine to decide to take a human life. But or ev- should it even take a human life if it, if it can capture that uh, person without that is, uh, yeah. well, killing Well, well then, then yeah, again, that comes back to a sort of legal question that applies to, to human soldiers as well. It's, it's very difficult sometimes to separate the elements of this discussion. It's actually one of the reasons that these debates are problematic is also the lack of definitions. So people, what, first of all, what they call autonomous, uh, it depends. I mean, the different, not just the different academics, but the different states have such wildly varying definitions that one state will say, there's no such thing as an autonomous weapon system and we'll never develop one. And another will say, we already have them. And they have the same things in their arsenal. It's just a question of how they're defining it. But also the language I used earlier, 
uh, just said, you know, should we allow a machine to decide to take a human life? There's a debate over whether that word decide is an appropriate one in the context of machines. Do machines ever decide or do they just execute certain algorithms with which they were programmed? So the debate is fraught with problems due to a, a lack of agreement on, on the definitions that we use. And uh, from uh, Asimov to Google's AI principles, we see that commercial entities are getting into this debate. Is that unique in the sense that a tank maker would not go into the morals of using a tank, I- I'm assuming? But Google does want to do AI right. So all technologies have a range of uses and are being developed often simultaneously for military purposes, for therapeutic purposes, for other commercial purposes. And sometimes it's being developed in the same place for, for the different uses. specifically about Google that mm-hmm. uh, they were working with uh, the Department of Defense and mm-hmm. they decided to... Yeah, with Maven. Yeah, and yeah. they decided to leave the project because of internal... opposition mm-hmm. within the company yeah I don't think that's new that that's quite common again with with all technologies uh, historically these debates over how it's going to be used at the end of the day everyone's going to be developing it for all the purposes and even if one company stops for example looking at the military uses then someone else is going to be working on it whether publicly or in secret and you Don't forget that we talk about sort of the US and the Pentagon and Google, but you know the stuff happening in China, for example, which we're not even aware of, but things are probably proceeding just as quickly under the radar over there. So the technologies with all of their uses, I think, will emerge at some point whether we like it or not. But do you find it weird that commercial entity decides to go into the moral, even philosophical aspect of the technology it creates? I don't. Uh, this is not something personally I've looked into, so I can't give you a definitive answer, but I'm fairly certain that those that work, say, in the field of the history of science and so on would be able to come up with many, many examples in the past. I would suspect that it's not unusual at all. Before we'll have robots on the battlefield or before it becomes common, we're going to see enhanced humans on the battlefield. Yeah, I suppose there's a debate as to what's going to come first. The question of sort of robots, I think sort of fully formed robots, that's going to be a long time, if at all. And there are debates over whether that should or shouldn't happen. I, Once I think, both sides have robots, they can just play a computer game. Well, that, that'll, be, that'll be interesting, indeed. Uh, I think also we've tended to focus a lot on robots, but actually the bigger question is generally about sort of machine learning and algorithms and, and uh, systems that are used. But, uh, but to your question of, uh, of enhanced humans, I do think that we've neglected giving attention to what you might call cyborgs by focusing too much on robots and, and artificial intelligence. And in many ways, the easier route for, uh, for militaries and for states, rather than trying to, from the ground up, you know, from scratch, build a newly intelligent creature uh, and, you know, and a robot that can go out and be autonomous and do all of these things, why not take the humans that we've got with the brains that As of now, we are not able to replicate artificially and enhance ourselves. And there is a huge amount of work being done uh, in this area with all sorts of uh, enhancements. Let's just uh, put a side note. What is an enhanced human? So it's difficult to define in that clearly we're talking about adding some kind of capability, but 
So one of the dividing lines, and perhaps sort of the most common one, is trying to do the division between uh, therapeutic technologies and enhancement technologies. The therapeutic ones would be the ones where we try and restore someone to the norm or what you might call to sort of the maximum human human capacity, uh, what we recognize as the maximum human capacity. Um, So like if your uh, eyesight is bad, you'll put glasses or a laser your eyes, but if you have night vision, that's already above human. Exactly. So that's one way of looking at it. But even that is not so straightforward because, you know, do you do that on the basis of sort of the average human norm? Or if we're talking about, say, uh, prosthetics, uh, if we give you a prosthetic that might be programmed to the 50th percentile, but before that you were in the, the 10th percentile and weren't particularly strong, then have we enhanced you? You know, even, even that distinction is not as clear cut, but that's usually how we try and do it. There are also questions over something external to the body or internal to the body that sometimes is used in this discussion. But again, none of it is completely clear cut. And what kind of problems uh, are we going to have with enhanced humans on the battlefield? So the types of enhancements that are being researched include everything from giving increased strength, performance, stamina, and that can be through mechanical enhancements from an exoskeleton that you step into uh, through to potentially uh, advanced prosthetics. And, you know, if we say to you, hey, you know, we can give you different arms and legs, going to those of us that remember the, the $6 million man, Steve Austin, right? So, you know, if you can choose to do that, would you? And and then the questions of what if actually when you say to conscripts uh, in the army, well, you know, we want to enhance you. This is part of joining the army, questions of consent and so on. Uh, is it okay to, to object? And you can see more easily someone saying, oh, yes, people should be able to object to having their limbs replaced with bionic limbs. But what if it's, you know, reversible uh, enhancements, cognitive enhancements? There's a lot of work being done there with enhancements to memory, to adding various functions to one's brain, and so on. So there are big questions you know, in the military context if you're enhancing soldiers with regard to their consent, to their experimenting on soldiers, and so on, but also questions that relate to their performance and what this might mean. By the way, an interesting question that can arise is what if, for example, we can have cognitive enhancements that improve one's ability to process information and make better decisions? Could you argue that there might become an obligation to enhance the commanders so that they make better decisions? Similar to debates over using precision weapons and, and, and so then, on. And then when they leave the army and, and go to politics, are we obliged to vote for them because they make better decisions than regular humans? Yeah, well, you might not be obliged to vote for them, but uh, yes, generally... Not, uh, not to start with. <laughs> um, ge- generally, if enhancement becomes more common one day in the military context, but less available to the wider society, so what happens when you leave the army? Do we remove the enhancement? Are all enhancements reversible or not? Even if physically something is reversible, it may have affected the wiring in your brain. Uh, it may be that it's not as reversible. And do we then create new traumas for the soldiers once yeah, you take you, away you their me, enhancement? You gave me a, um, um, a trait and then you took it away. Mm-hmm. 
Exactly. So it's a very interesting questions that can arise around that. Or if we don't take it away, do we suddenly have all of these you know, superhumans released from the army and walking around? And, and, and what does that mean? Uh, generally, if we have enhancement, whether through the military or not, we could have questions in society about discrimination. And it can be discrimination in the context of discriminating against enhanced people or discrimination by virtue of some people having access to enhancement and others not. So that can go both ways as well. Speaking of civil enhancement, not necessarily uh, military, how would a country even start thinking about regulating that? Because, uh, for example, there's a company called NorthSense. Their CEO has an implant that tells him where North is. He couldn't legally get it in a hospital because that would be an experiment in a, in a human being and that would have to go through different uh, processes. But as you said, like in other places in the world, maybe in China, experiments are probably taking place. Yeah. So there is a question in terms of how we regulate the development and generally from an ethical perspective, and it's different. This is, you know, usually under domestic systems in different countries, there can be problems when you want to experiment on something that doesn't have a therapeutic purpose, right? So if we want to drill into someone's skull and attach electrodes. If you say, well, we want to do it because we want to put in an implant to help with, say, Parkinson's or some therapeutic purpose, and you go through an ethical review. But if you say, well, we want to do this because we want to see if someone can fly a drone with their thoughts, which, by the way, is possible now, then how do you get the ethical review for that? Because there isn't a therapeutic purpose. And you're talking about drilling into someone's skull. But there is plastic surgery for uh, just for looks and for no good reason, for no good medical reason. There are balances with all of these things. And, so, and, so and what I'm saying it, is that maybe yeah. this is like plastic surgery for your um, traits, for your abilities. Yeah, I, I would think that at least for the time being, people would see a difference between drilling through your skull and sticking an electrode to your brain as opposed to stretching your skin. Uh, so, but yes, I completely uh, agree that these things can also change with time. But interestingly, and you, you mentioned the people sort of putting, say, a compass into their body, there's a whole movement of what some call body hacking now, and that's just one example. There are all sorts of other various implants or things you could do. You know, you could have an implant that allows you to sense electromagnetic fields. For example, there are all sorts of interesting things that are going on. One of the potentially more far-reaching consequences involves the use of a CRISPR and uh, a technology that allows for gene editing that people are doing on their own. What does this mean and how do we regulate that? And this can have, you know, gene editing can have long-term effects into next generations. So this whole field right now is a little bit of a Wild West going on. Uh, it's one of the reasons that I think it's a fascinating field to work in in terms of trying to understand what kind of regulation we need and think in advance of what are the legal, ethical, social questions that we need to be considering and hopefully do that quickly now before it's too late, as has happened with other technologies. And this with a personal question. Would you enhance yourself? Oh, <laughs> so that's, a, that's an interesting question, to be honest, despite having worked on this topic for um, at least a year now, including talking to scientists developing it i never gave too much thought as to whether i i would enhance myself uh i mean some of the ideas particularly cognitive one enhancements are very interesting i think the way i see it and from what i've been learning about these technologies the more interesting ones are still quite far away 
And I suppose I tend not to project myself too much into the future. So as of now, these aren't options and therefore I, I haven't given them much consideration. But who knows in the future? Yeah, but you could always freeze yourself cryogenically and wait for the developments to come. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's another one of the dreams. I, I, you know, I'm a big fan of science fiction, but I've been trying in my research to focus on scientific reality or the impending reality rather than the fictional, which I, I leave to the other hours of the day. Yeah, I'd like to thank my guest, uh, human professor, uh, Noam Lubel. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. This was Lex Kibernetica. Lex Kibernetica. More episodes are available at the Hebrew University Cybersecurity Research Center site at csrcl.huji.ac.il.